Good evening, everybody. I know you weren't expecting to see just me sitting here. We actually have two guests. They're coming, and as I promised, it's going to be Brandon Tatum and Bishop Broderick Huggins, and uh, it's going to be a wonderful evening. Um, and, and with you tonight is not just me and the two guys that are coming, but we also have a live audience, uh, but they're, they, well, they wanted to say hello, so everyone just cheer for them. And for the county health inspector, that was just a laugh track. Um, you see how we do that? Um, I wanted to share with a lot of you uh, tonight that uh, an individual came and before the, the program, uh, we were taking questions and one of the questions was, may we pray? And, um, and I said, that would be great. Well, it, it's a, a friend from the past. Her name is Regina Goad. She's, a, she was a, she's newly retired. Uh, she taught at El Camino Real High School. She taught health. And I was introduced to her in the early 2000s by, at the time, my best friend. Um, his name was Bob Gainsley. And Bob went to be with the Lord. Uh, he had cancer. He had called me at the end of the school year. And uh, he said, I'm, I went to the doctor today and, and I'm riddled with cancer. And I said, Bob, what's the Lord telling you? Do we want to pray for healing? Or he said, no, I think the Lord's taking me home. And I said, well, then we'll pray for, you know, a, a, a quick return. And we did. And we prayed together. And I was his caretaker. Uh, I was with him through the toughest parts of that, as well as two other folks. And uh, he, he lasted about uh, a little less than a week and went to be with the Lord and uh, about three days ago, I got a call from his parents. And he passed away quite a while ago. I got a call from his parents. And um, he had an older brother who had died. And um, he, he was an anesthesiologist. And um, John Hopkins, um, magna cum laude, and owned vineyards and sports cars and uh, medical practice. And um, he struggled with homosexuality and got into that lifestyle. He ended up penniless in the Tirloin district. Bob went and loved on his brother and took care of him at the end. And uh, his brother, who had wanted to be a missionary doctor, uh, recommitted his life to Christ. And Bob was one of the most generous people I've ever met. He was single his whole life, took care of students that were just having a struggle in school and would sacrificially give of his time, treasures, and talents. And... Um, his parents called me about three days ago, just remembering him because about this time he'd passed. And tonight, Regina showed up, and uh, she's the one who asked to pray. And then she came up, and she gave me a picture of me and Bob back from 2002. And uh, I'm, I miss him. Uh, a man is blessed who has friends. And uh, I've, I've had the privilege to have some amazing friends. And one has been one of the closest friends I've ever had the privilege to be given by the Lord, and that's Bishop Broderick Huggins, who, since the day I met him, he's loved on me, and he's been by my side. And this is a man, as we've covered on different live streams, this is a man that really, if we look at the, the world today, you'd almost think that the two of us would be the last folks who'd ever be friends. I'm a lifelong Republican. He's a lifelong Democrat. Um, I was raised in a community that was 99.6% white. I was a marshmallow in milk. Um, Bishop, Bishop Huggins um, grew up in a black community. He was beaten up by a white gang. His son was killed by Alameda sheriffs. 13 times he was shot. Uh, 
And you would think that the two of us would never connect, but God's way bigger than all that. And, um, and my other friend that I've just recently met, but I feel as though I've known him forever, Bishop Huggins is, I know it's going to be hard to believe when you see him, he's in his 60s, early 60s. Um, but this next fella, Brandon Tatum, is 33 years young. And when I saw Brandon, I met him this past week, I saw a younger version of Bishop Huggins because they both don't have guile in them. They're just the sweetest people you can imagine. Uh, Brandon has joined Candace Owens to start Blexit, Blacks Exiting the Democratic Party. He did a video that went viral, over 100 million views. He was a lifelong Democrat, became a Republican. He's been to the White House many times. And... Um, he himself was a, a Tucson police officer. So tonight you have two black Americans, interesting lives, and tonight they're coming together. This is the first time they've met. But after I'd met Brandon and I saw in him a younger version of Broderick, I knew that these two men would be used of God to bring some reconciliation, some healing uh, to this nation. We're in the throes of a great challenge, uh, whether or not this nation will be a constitutional republic or a socialist Marxist direction. And folks maybe don't agree with my assessment. I, I, I'm willing to have a conversation with you. I, I don't make these things up. This is, this is my background as a history major, the work I've done, having served in public office. And I, I knew the minute I, I met the younger version of Broderick, I knew these two men are going to be instrumental for the soul of this nation. And I am so thrilled to have them here tonight. So would you welcome my two guests, Bishop Broderick Huggins and Officer Brandon, Brandon Tatum. Come on up, fellas. Thank you. God bless you. All right, I, I don't. If we're looking at the screen, the contrast. I mean, <laughs> you get pulled Horrido. over for right, right the <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say it, but I, I'm, I'm new here. So All right, I, I let's switch seats. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> Pair of white shoes with a black tuxedo. <laughs> no, but you. I, I'm looking at the the, the melanin content. You get pulled over for riding a motorcycle for tinted windows. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And then this is, I, I'm just, I don't have any melanin. I just bubble. I don't even tan. And, <laughs> but the reality is, as, as we look at the spectrum here, that, that's not an issue tonight. Right. Absolutely. For, for any not. of the three of us, but it is in the nation. And there's a lot of herd out there. Um, and... And everyone's trying to navigate these waters unprecedented in any of our lifetimes. And I, I wanted to begin with you. I call you Brother Love, but tonight we'll call you Bishop. I wanted to start with you, Bishop, because you were an integral part of this county. You were the pastor of the largest black church in Ventura County. You're now in Wichita. And when I first met you, it was a pastor's gathering. I was running for office, and they put me at your table. And uh, we were, yeah, it was tense in the sense that I'm there to try to gain support in a 
predominantly Democratic district, plus 21 Democrat. And I'm working with the clergy to try to do that. And I, I, I thought for sure, and I knew the Lord had orchestrated us sitting together, but I thought for sure you wouldn't give me the time of day. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And that, that, that's just fear on my part. But the beauty of it is, see, they're messing with you again. They did that earlier. Where's my bobby pin? (laughs) But we we hit it off. And then I came to visit you. I brought you some honey from my beehive. Yes. And and ever since, it's just, I I joke, but I I still feel it. I feel like we were separated at birth. Um, You've been such a precious friend to me. And we've been through some ups and downs. Not personally, but watching our lives go through difficulties and challenges. And every time I'm at the lowest point in my life, the phone rings and it's you. And you're moved by the Holy Spirit to call me. You're one of the best friends a human being can have. You're sensitive, you're thoughtful, you're other-centered, and you're also irritating because you're such a good preacher, you make me wish that God had made two of you and none of me. (laughs) It's the truth. I've never heard a better, a, a better expository teacher and your hermeneutics, you, you captivate people. And so I, I, I wanted Brandon to meet you because when I met you, Brandon, uh, University of Arizona football player, All-American. Hey. I was an All-American in water polo. <laughs> At the Harvard of the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno State. <laughs> they got rid of it when the horses drowned. But that's, uh, nobody gets that joke. Uh, and, 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 but you'd had some ups and downs. Uh, you, you grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd had some loved ones incarcerated. You, had, you lost some folks uh, at the hand of law enforcement. Uh, you, you came, you experienced prejudice both from the white community and the black community towards the white community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you end up being at school, you go through some really tough times. You end up in a, a church where the first time you'd heard the gospel, now you had been going to church when you were young, but as you said, uh, you were in the church, but the church wasn't in you. Right. That sounds like a Broderick line. <laughs> and I know you're going to steal it. <laughs> And use it better. <laughs> um, and, then, and then with this change of direction, it, the NFL draft didn't work out. And then you, you found yourself serendipitously going into law enforcement. You got a call and you thought you were in trouble. But yeah. it was it, that you said that to me. Yeah. And, and yet they were responding to your application. Yep. And you, you, you served in the, the Tucson Police Department, uh, part of the SWAT team. SWAT team. And that's a... That's a that's a tough. It was tough department there. It was and tough to get tough on that, yeah. that team, man. And you were an instructor, yeah. so you excelled. Mm-hmm. And then you do a video after you're you're dealing with law enforcement. You're a Democrat at the time, and you, you're you're dealing with law enforcement, and you're dealing with community, and you're looking at issues, and you do a video. Was about 21 minutes long. No, it was shorter than that. Oh, probably shorter than a little that. over 10 minutes. 10 minutes. That hits 100 million views, plus or minus. And next thing you know, God changes this direct tra- trajectory where you're now a spokesperson. You join with Candace Owen. You're doing the Blexit. Oh. And I share that because here is a man. At one point, I'd say lifelong 
Democrat, but at one point, was there a time where you were considering Republican, or I can't remember no, what you No, I had become a Republican for a couple of years during the Bush administration. Bush administration. Yeah. And, and then went back to Democrat. Yeah. And, and yet, interacting with me seamlessly, endorsing me as a Republican, you're community-minded, c- civility is the issue. We've talked about abortion, we've talked about all kinds of stuff, and you've given me insights to things I've never seen before. So, together, as you're sitting here, I I wanted America to hear two amazing men that God's using help everyone understand what we're facing, especially with this movement of BLM. And I want to distinguish between BLM and Black Lives Matter because the the phrase Black Lives Matter is critical. The organization BLM, to me, and and, and I'm going to back out, I'm not going to be a guest on my own show. But the organization BLM, in my estimation, is completely Marxist, pagan, dangerous. I'm just going to say it. That being said, there's areas for you, Bishop, that you see the benefit of what's occurring and the cry of the people. And having lost a son who was shot 13 times in an Alameda Sheriff's Department, and you being an officer... I think this is an area where you guys can really, with the tenderness of your lives, communicate in such a way that people gain understanding as what the scriptures want us to do. So I don't even know where to go. I just had this picture. I'm going to leave it up to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll touch, I'll touch on the, the BLM thing. Okay. Um, that's something that I talk about a lot. Uh, when you talk about or when you mention black lives, I think that they, they all matter. You know, just like everybody in here matters, no matter what color you are. Uh, We're all God's children. There ain't no black lives matter in heaven. You know, that's all of us who are, you know, that God has chosen, who are saved and and who are um, dedicated to the gospel will will meet each other in heaven. And that's what I believe. So when you see an organization that seems to be rooted in uh, a lot of animosity, a lot of revenge, not necessarily unity, it seems to be somewhat of a reverse of white supremacy. It seems to be a black supremacy um, hint in the BLM movement. And then even on their website, they articulate that they want to get rid of the, the nuclear family and different things like that. And I don't, I don't think that that's positive for our country. And I can ask anyone who is directly associated with the organization, what has been accomplished since the inception of BLM from the organization? And I can't name one thing. And I wish that what we would do is come together as a people, stop putting labels on things, and let's work on these issues together. There is room for improvement in law enforcement. And there's also room for improvement in communities as well. And if we get to the crux of it, we work together, we actually find issues that are, that are real, yeah. real police brutality, not the fake scenarios, not something that you don't like, but real police brutality, let's all get behind it real levels of racism, let's get behind it, and we can work together and make it better. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this to you with, with an illustration that you gave me. You invited me to your anniversary as a yes. pastor, and I was on the dais. I was the only white guy on the dais, and I was sitting next to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, yes. who was your keynote. Yes. And... I marveled at the fact that here I am a right-wing evangelical fundamentalist 
you know, white preacher sitting next to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright and a man who could navigate both worlds and love both people. Um, and I know as Brandon's sharing, immediately, just for many Americans, the fact that all lives matter would be considered a racist statement. All, all the, w help us understand, because you're, you're brilliant in spanning that bridge. And, and address, talk on any of it, whatever you want, but that's just the first thought that came to my mind. The movement entitled Black Lives Matter is actually, to me, a fever blister on the lip of a sick and swollen society. It's, it is the response rather than something that was initiated without merit. At the end of the day, when we scan the, 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 the whole landscape of America and understand the sinister system of racism in America. So many things that have happened to um, young African-American men. And there has been absolutely no justice that's come out of it. Um, and perception is reality for most people. The world and the way we see the world is much different in the black community than the dominant larger society. You can't be what you cannot see. You can't live in an area in our country and be connected to the experience of someone else unless you go out of your way to make it happen. There is a, a great need for reconciliation in this country. We're desperate for it, especially now. The tensions are high. People are going berserk. You go to these protests and you don't know who's who in the zoo, and I literally mean that. <laughs> you don't know if you have a right-wing extremist in the crowd. You don't know if you have a Marxist officer of Black Lives Matter in the crowd. And you don't know if you have someone like me who's simply protesting and crying out for someone to pay attention to a situation that was swept under the rug. Ray Charles can see, and Stevie don't have to wonder, that, that, when, that when an officer deals with a white and a black youth in the same scenario that there's going to be two different responses. My son, who was shot 13 times in Oakland, California, 
um, did not have the chance to get an explanation as to why he was being stopped. The newspaper article simply suggested that um, he wouldn't get out the car. And because he didn't get out the car, um, there was a short conversation and he just, with irresponsible uh, response, with an irresponsible response, just drove off and they had to shoot him to stop him. Further investigation, and when I received the DA's report, I didn't know that three of the officers had three different versions, and the body cam only, only caught him saying, what did I do? What the F did I do? But the impetus to that was he, the officer had approached him in a way that was prejudicial in the initial encounter. Um, he was a former gang member, but he had gotten out. He had gotten out, he had gotten his life together. I sent him, he had finished, he's got his degree For in trucking, business. For trucking, he's also, yeah, yeah can do got business. his degree in business. Uh, um, I bought him a truck, spent a lot of money trying to get, and he was married, had two kids, and was doing well. And then this happened on the back end. So he, the officer judged him based on what the report said rather than who he was at this season in his life. So it, it was, it, and I have been totally frustrated trying, I, I haven't, it's been eight years, I still haven't seen, seen uh, the body cam. I, you know, still, I had to go to Oakland and pick it to get the information to find out what really happened. So, so what I'm saying is that if I had to deal with that level of frustration, trying to just simply get information, not even to mention to get the full scope of what transpired, um, the frustration with many black fathers and mothers um, dictate that you gravitate to something that's going to speak to your level of sensitivity. Mm. I could care less about him being Marxist. Okay. I understand that. I, I could care less because, and I could care less about the anti-fascists uh, moving the movement because when you look at the tenets of fascism, it's almost like choosing between the devil and, uh, and Satan, you know, a demon or, an, or a foul spirit <laughs> as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Um, at the, at the end of the day, um, choosing between fascism and Marxism is irrelevant to someone that's hurting. They're both the same, in my estimation, fascism and communism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so at, at the end of the day, most of the people that I know, and I can only speak for myself, that 
ascribe to the Black Lives Matter slogan. They're more committed to the slogan and for what it represents rather than the political affiliation connected with it out of pain, out of frustration, out of not being heard, out of um, a sense, really a sense of desperation. And, and there's been a lot of controversy even about how preachers approach this dynamic. Um, uh, I wrote my dissertation on uh, liberation theology and, and when the Jeremiah Wright uh, fiasco became a controversial um, conversation in America. Um, when Sean Hannity was repeating the yeah, yeah, GD America thing. And, and my thing was, you know, don't demonize a concept unless you know what it is. It's simply um, a theological position that seeks to connect with God where you are and that the anointing and power of God comes from the bottom up in order to find God in the context of your own cultural experience. And, and so I, I think that sometimes um, we like to take the simplistic approach to a problem rather than sitting down and communicating and finding out the, the, the substantive dynamics of that situation yeah. and, and getting to the heart of the matter. When I met you, Rob, um, at that uh, meeting, um, I just liked you. You had, I was a, hoping you loved you had a winning smile. I mean, and then when you preached at my church, I said, this Negro, I mean, this white boy can preach. <laughs> okay? And, 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 and that, that connected me with you. Everything else is, is, is trivial. Everything else is irrelevant to me. And, and I think that that's where you have to start the conversation at where we have commonality. Let, let, let me jump in there. Because you shared a number of things in all that you just said that I would take an opposing position on. But nothing triggered emotionally to get frustrated. I was just listening. Right. I, I am enjoying your presence. I love listening to you. There's things right there we can discuss and, sure. and take apart and, sure. and go for. But I have to say there was no visceral response because the friendship is far greater and we'll get to these things, and we have. And I say that because this, this is missing in America. We immediately want to stop you right where we disagree with you and dumb. I, I didn't, I listened. Right. And, and that's not kudos to me. It's just, I, I love listening to you. And I come over here to you, Brandon, because as he's described the, the incident and the tragedy of his son, and as a police officer, mm -hmm. 
I can, I can assume, not having been a police officer, but a sheriff's chaplain, I can assume that there's areas in there going, yeah, well, but, you know. And I say that because you're going into a situation, you get a report, you're in a life and death situation, you don't know what you're dealing with, there's a whole different scenario on your end of this spectrum. And, and you're hearing what he's saying, but you also know what officers are dealing with day in and day out. Yeah. And the tension going up to that vehicle, somebody, as described in the newspaper account, but not the police report that we still haven't. And I, I remember when you received it, your heart was broken. I, I remember these things. But on your end, you're looking at it from a whole different set of, of eyes. And I add this, and I want you to comment on it, that we're looking at a decline in a, in a constitutional republic of morality, which, as Benjamin Rush, Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the founders of the country, he pointed out that when you remove God from the equation, prisons will fill. And, I mean, you're just watching a decline. Mm -hmm. And then you have sheepdogs, police officers, that swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you have to, you have to enforce laws given by legislators that are maybe contrary to the Constitution. You're also enforcing laws and realizing that this thin blue line are people you go to work with every day whose families you know and who have lost officers, and you have that in common. And as a chaplain to the Sheriff's Department, I saw this, that police officers in Romans 13 are ministers of justice, so you're a minister, just like Broderick Bishop and I are ministers, but you're to execute wrath on those who would do evil. Ours is a grace-driven. Yours is law-driven. That being said, we, I, I noticed as a chaplain that pastors like to hang around. We don't have a lot of close friends because we don't even want to know what our lives are like in secret. Because <laughs> <laughs> we want everyone to think that we walk on water. Yes. <laughs> but these people came because they know otherwise. <laughs> And officers are the same way. You're upholding a law that even in your personal lives, because you, you have prescription drug use that is dangerous, alcoholism is dangerous, divorce that's rampant in law enforcement, stressful job, and we're all dealing with an imploding culture. And yet you still have to hold that line because if we remove the police force from these inner cities, they burn, and that's not what any of them want. No. We, we, no. we go into the black community and, and you... you you pull them and you realize they, they don't want their cities abandoned, at least no, abandon them. No, no. Give insight for everybody, understanding what Broderick shared, mm -hmm. and, and tell us that, that perspective that is so unique that you have, not only from the black community, but an officer and someone who's faced prejudice and, and having lost loved ones, but not your son, but still. Give us insight. Well, I think that we're, we are in a position where there's a huge disconnect between citizens and police. Yeah. It's a, it's, people have no idea what it's like to be a police officer unless you become a police officer. And people wonder, how do you know that, Brandon? Because before I became a police officer, I had no idea what police officers really did. <laughs> I had no idea what it felt like. I had no idea what it's like to have another person's life in your hands, whether it be saving their lives or having to make the decision to use deadly force against somebody. And in law enforcement, I, I, this is just my personal opinion based on my experiences. 
it's very rare for a police officer to activate racism or prejudice to a certain degree based on race. And the reason why I say that is because day in and day out, law enforcement officers are tasked to support the community no matter who you are. When they call that, your, your, you know, your call sign come out, mine was 2 Adam 11-7. They say 2 Adam 11-7, I need to respond to this address. They don't say it's a black man, it's a white man, uh, you know, that person is anti-police or whatever the case may be. You have to go. You have to respond. I've saved people's lives who were white, black, indifferent, gay, straight. I've saved everybody. I've saved many people. Um, and especially when you look at police officers in the inner city and you look at white police officers in the inner city. Every police encounter is not a shooting. Right. Every police encounter is not violence. Right. Majority of police encounters are basic uh, service, you know, um, burglaries that are that have taken place a long time ago. Um, someone needs assistance because they're missing a child or or uh, domestic violence that have occurred and is and is now over. Th those things happen more often than a than a, a blunt force trauma type shooting situation. So these white officers and, and I've worked with many white officers are spending majority of their time risking their lives for black people. They in some cases die for black people. And I've learned that because of that dynamic, I feel like those officers who exclusively work in the black community that happen to be white, they have a closer connection with black people than others do. Meaning that I feel that they're least prejudiced or racist against black people. I'm gonna go back to the, the dilemma of not knowing what's going on. When you look at the news every day, you see this rhetoric that if you walk outside right now as a black man in America, you're gonna get gunned down. You're gonna be approached unlawfully. That's just not the truth. It's not gonna happen that way. Um, and you look at statistical data proves that. Um, if, you, if you take a genuine look at most people, you survey them, they, they don't have these interaction with police um, as a common everyday citizen not committing crimes. So if you look at the rhetoric, it paints a picture and it paints an animosity that then matriculates down to a traffic stop. And when I was growing up, I was taught to hate the police. So a cop pulled me over, I don't know the law, they know the law, but I think it's because I'm black. No, I mean, I was just, my music loud. They, ain't no, they can't put me over. I'm, I'm, they just put me over because I'm black. They don't want to see a brother driving a nice car. And in reality, that's not the case. That officer deals with hundreds of people on a day-to-day basis. I'm just one, one in a number. Although I take that experience personally and I get to a point of, you know, using biases that I have towards police. I think that occurs more often than not. And when you look at shootings that occur, I've been on both sides, right? I mean, I was, when I'm not in the uniform, I'm a black man in America. And when I put my uniform on, I serve and protect. When you look at situations like uh, Jacob Blake, Jacob Blake um, had a politician say, and I was just on Laura Ingram talking about it, said that she was proud of him. And that people think that what happened to Jacob Blake, the gentleman that was shot five, seven times in the back, they think that that was unjust and they don't know details about anything that really happened, it's thrusted in that position because it's politically expedient. But when you look at what actually happened, Jacob Blake sexually assaulted a woman and he sexually assaulted her in a violent way. He had a warrant for his arrest because of that sexual assault. He was now back at her residence at the time of this incident, furthering a domestic violence incident. He attempted to steal a car for a second time 
She called the police on him. Police respond. On the radio transmission, they had identified that Jacob Blake was the, was the suspect involved and that he had a warrant. They went to execute the warrant to arrest him to preserve life for a black woman. And he fought the police officers. He fought them. They were in a knockdown drag out fight behind his vehicle or behind the vehicle that he ended up getting shot in. Um, he had one police officer in a headlock at one point. They attempted to tase him, which is a less lethal weapon. It did not work. He goes around the car. He goes to get in the driver's seat. As a police officer, your adrenaline is rushing at a, at a rate that you cannot imagine because you're wondering how much further is this man going to go? He's already fighting people. He has a violent history. He either has a knife. He mentioned that he had a knife. He's going to get in his vehicle. Now, he gets in a vehicle. What is he going to do? Is he going to drop, get in the vehicle, drive away, crash into somebody, kill somebody on the way down the street? Or is he going to get in the vehicle, grab a gun, and kill us? Those possibilities are real. This is not a video game. You don't just get killed and, and you come back when you hit the reset button. You're dead forever. Your family, I had a son. You know, I, I mean, I still have a son, but when I was a police officer, I had my son. I, I don't want to die and leave my son without a father because this guy want to fight us. So he gets to the car, and the police officer have to use deadly force against him at this point. And what people may not understand is that police aren't shooting you to kill you. They shoot you to eliminate the threat. Unfortunately, people die on the first shot. This man got shot seven times, and he's, he just paralyzed. That's all. You know, and so in this situation, I believe that the police officer were shooting him to render him incapable of becoming a threat or ma maintaining his threat level. I think at the point that the bullet hit his spinal cord, which paralyzed him, is when he stopped. And that's when the police officer stopped shooting. If they were intended on killing him, it's very simple. You shoot the man in the head two times and he's dead. But they're shooting center mass to prevent him from be becoming a threat. Did they accomplish what they pursued? Yes. He was no longer a threat. They did not kill him. Unfortunately, he was paralyzed. I can go on about hundreds of cases like this where it's this disconnect. And if you see two seconds of a police interaction and you know nothing about policing, know nothing about use of force policies, you have never physically been in a uniform. You've never physically fought people. I mean, it's, it's, it will change your life. You know, I was exposed to policing for the first time before I ever joined the police department through a ride along. And I would honestly suggest every single person that's in here that cares anything about law enforcement or, want, or curious about law enforcement, do a ride along. Because then you can sit in the front seat and you can have an exposure to what police officers actually deal with. You can hear how calls come out on the radio. You can feel the adrenaline when they get a call on the radio that says, two out of 11 seven, we have a man with a gun at so-and-so, he has a lady at gunpoint. You can't, you can't, you can't cower. You can't say, oh, not today. My son's birthday party is, you know, my son's birthday party yeah, is this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to tell you guys, and I don't mean to take up too much time, but I'm going to tell you guys one of the calls that I got. And I called my son before I went to the call because I didn't think I was going to make it. It was a man with a, it, I was getting off the shift. I worked the night shift, 9 to 7 o'clock in the morning. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning. Shift is almost over. I'm ready to fall asleep behind the wheel. I'm so tired. We get a call, a man with a gun at a uh, medical facility, he's shooting at people in traffic with a rifle. 
And if you know any ballistics of a rifle, I mean, you can hit a person in a rifle from 200 yards away. We can't, we can't back out. There can't be, I want to go home. We have to go and address this guy. Now, I don't know if he's a marksman. I don't know if he's going to shoot me while I'm driving up on a car and I'm going to die. I called my son. I called him. I had a cell phone. I called him and I said, you know, I just wanted to let you know I love you. Because I didn't know if I was going to live or die. But when I put the uniform on, I'm willing to die for people that I don't know. And I wish that we could have these conversations with men and women who wear the uniform and let them hear the pain from the victim side so you can articulate to a police officer in a calm and loving manner, well, this is my concerns, and let a police officer say, well, these are the things that we do. Let's come together and fix yeah. them. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this last point, and then I'm done. If, and I know I say that if y'all watch my videos, I always say that. Then. <laughs> 20 minutes. 20 sound minutes like a preacher. You sound like a Baptist preacher. I know. My, my, pastor, my, my pastor used to say, I'm almost finished. And then an hour later, we still ain't eight or nothing. We still in church. You, you, know what it, you know what it means when a minister looks at his watch? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to bob you some more time. That's what it is. So I think I almost lost track of what I was saying, but I think if we sit down and have those conversations, they will be incredibly meaningful. Um, but it comes with love. The reason why we can sit down and have a conversation because we're men of God. Yes. And that our relationship with God is more than any opinion, more than any color, race, or whatever. Yeah. I want to say something. The cream filling needs to talk. (laughs) You got the floor. (laughs) When Brandon was talking, it touched me when you were moved by what he said. Because I know a lot of what he was saying, it it was hurting. But you were gracious and kind to, it, it, it moved me. And you're in agreement with what he said in the sense of communicating and dialoguing. Uh, that's what's missing. And that's all I wanted to say. I'm not adding anything. Just you bless me. So, I, I just want to say, Brandon, I can't even imagine doing what you do. I don't have the mental capacity or the aptitude and be honest with you the guts to get out there <laughs> and 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 to do and to risk my life physically every day every day so it, the problem in america and I've said this to Rob on several occasions, the problem in America is not communication, it's comprehension. And because we talk at each other instead of to each other, and because we demonize what we disagree with and the people we disagree with rather than humanize sympathize and and become them vicariously 
to walk in their shoes. The communicative disconnect keeps us at each other rather than turning to each other. So, you know, my, my, so to be honest with you, I probably would not have wanted to go on the call where my son was. And that's my son, okay? But he, here's, here's, what the, here's the challenge for me, that you're speaking from your heart. You are a man of God. There is a sensitivity and a sensibility about you that's uncommon to many people. The racist officers who execute people in, a, in an irresponsible way, I know they are the micro-minority. I, I, I get that. And I think any sensible person gets that. It's, it's the same in the ministry. Yes. We get one that goes bad and we're all affected by it. Absolutely. And so when someone in ministry crosses that line or misrepresents who he is who he is called to be, there has to be a sense of retribution and justice so that the example can be made. And, and when that does not happen is when we get the response that we're getting now. See, I wouldn't and, know. And, 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 and so, and, and, and then on the other hand, you get, you get people who, who um, go off on the deep end to generalize their negative experience. When I saw Rob at the table, I could have, as the country people say, wretched way back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thought about my grandfather being lynched. I could have thought about when the gang of white boys beat me and left me for dead and the boy that was brought up on charges received nothing but a $50 fine and a suspended sentence when it should have been attempted murder, okay? Um, it ignited something in our school. At the Franklin High School, um, there was a history of race riots. I came up during the time in the early 70s when integration was, had been initiated. We're trying to figure that thing out. You know, every time I watch, remember the Titans. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. my favorite movie. <laughs> uh, when I see remember the Titans, there's not one time I've ever watched that movie without crying because that was me. That was Franklin High School. Mm -hmm. 
And when that, and when that situation happened, the white kids, the brown kids, the black kids, 2,000 of us from all over the city of Stockton, we marched to the school district. And from that moment on, instead, because uh, our school was in uh, an all-white community, okay? And so with me and my idealism, I, I grew up with one of the most precious women that ever walked the face of the earth. My mother was an angel, <laughs> okay? I'm, I mean that pure, the, a pure-hearted, loving woman who taught me to love. And, and, and she came out after this situation um, with her sense of idealism. And they were ready to riot because I got friends, they had gotten baseball bats and guns and they were getting ready to go get those white boys that did that to me. We had an assembly. My mother talked to them. I got a chance to talk to the people, to, to the kids. We did the march. And that moment was the turning point in the city of Stockton. There were no more race riots from that point on. We shifted our attention from race and bigotry and hatred and revenge and we started getting back to the business of learning and making the experiment of integration work. And we, and 50 years, is it 50 years? What, what are we 46 talking? years later. Yeah, okay. 46 years later, we are just as close today oh, okay. as we became after that situation. For one reason, there, the, the white kids at that school became sensitized to me because they knew me. They knew my heart. They knew I loved them. And they rallied around me. And we became, uh, we became change agents in our city. Let me, let me flick the switch as we go to Brandon with this thought that you just described something that would be probably very prevalent right now in 2020. Absolutely in some major cities in America. The difference is we didn't tribalize and isolate. Your mother set the tone to cross that bridge. That required, you were offended and hurt. You forgave and you stepped in and you spoke and you said what was on your heart and there was reconciliation. That's 40-something years ago, and now we're morally less equipped. And you got officers who have to hold the line and, and people that want them dead and are throwing 
cement-filled canisters at them and incendiary devices. Where are the Broderick Huggins today? You're here, but I'm talking about the younger version. You'd be in the middle of it right now. And his disadvantage is you didn't experience fully what he did at 62. You're at 33. That doesn't mean you haven't experienced 64. it. 64. 64. <laughs> You've earned those two years. I'll leave it alone. <laughs> so, I don't know, touch on that. Yeah, yeah so, uh, you know, my grandmother used to tell me about her stories, uh, how when she was coming up, they used to have to drink our separate water fountains. I, could, I wouldn't even believe that to be true unless I saw it with my own eyes, you know, given the fact that we're so far removed, in my personal opinion, from that racial division back in the 60s and, and 70s. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that frustrates me is that you went through something. That was real. That was probably in a real example of racism, uh, oppression that you felt. Nowadays, it's plagiarized. These young people aren't going through oppression. These young people aren't dealing with real racism, in my personal opinion. There's no laws on the books that says that because you're black, you can't do something. They are trying to find um, their identity in the past because they, they cannot see themselves in the future. They have no future. So their only attachment to black success is the black people who were honorable in the past. They want to attach themselves to Martin Luther King and be another Martin Luther King. But Martin Luther King actually went through something. Martin Luther King actually marched peacefully with a suit and tie on as a man of God. But they, we don't have no leaders no more. And so people are so confused and going, you know, every which way. I want to touch on something else, too, because I think everybody in America wants justice for unjust things that are that are happening, unjust police behavior. But the problem in America today is that people don't differentiate between justice and revenge. Someone sees a, a police officer kill a person yeah. that they love That's or good. is in an awkward position, they That's want revenge. Good. That's good. Because That's the good. law articulates that an officer can do X, Y, Z. That person was probably wrong. People don't want to hear that that person was wrong. There's a gentleman named Sean Reed. I don't know if anybody know that person. They quit talking about him. But he got into a police shooting. He live streaming on Facebook. If you go back and look at his Facebook, he did a drive-by shooting live on his Facebook account. He did a drive-by shooting. The incident in which he was killed by police, he was live streaming him in a high-speed pursuit from the police, at which case his phone caught him pulling the gun on the police when he got shot. They protest. There was another gentleman who had a warrant, an active warrant for a murder of another black man. They was chasing him. He ran up to the front of a store. He got a gun, boom, blew his brains out. They protested and they claimed police brutality and he's on camera killing himself. Um, you can go down a list of individuals who were not abused by police, but they're used as examples to further this agenda. There are individuals like Laquan McDonald who got shot 12 times and he was not a threat to the police officer at that moment. Police should be trained enough to, to where you don't have to be threatened to shoot a man who's not pursuing you. He's in the middle of the street yes, walking in circles. Absolutely. We can get behind that. Yeah. I, I made a video yeah. about it. Yeah. I advocate that there needs to be justice. And it was. That dude went to jail. Uh, Walter Scott, I believe it was Walter Scott, South Carolina. He uh, fought the police officer. 
The police officer lost the fight. Uh, the police officer drops his taser. Walter Scott runs down the road, or uh, down the, it was like a, a, a park. Yeah. He shoots Walter Scott in the back. Boom, 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 boom. Thought nobody was watching. He walks up, drops the taser at his feet and try to stage it as if it was a shooting for the taser. Somebody had it on camera. That was, uh, I, I can't use the words because I'm in church. That was such a ridiculous act of cowardice and a misrepresentation of policing in America. But he went to jail. Um, what happened with George Floyd? I think it's, it's slightly controversial. I believe that George Floyd died from um, him ingesting methamphetamine and fentanyl. It probably wasn't directly a result of the knee on the neck. However, putting your knee on someone's neck and showing no mercy to them is all equally is troubling. That officer, the next morning, was, was fired and arrested. So we have instances where we can gather together and have justice. But making up a noose in a, in a stall at NASCAR or paying people to beat you up or advocating for these thugs and criminals who are resisting arrest and fighting and pulling guns on police officers. Just like the kid in DC, he's running with a gun, he pulls the gun out, they shoot him when he's throwing a gun. So he gets shot from the front, throw the gun, they protest. So I just wish that more men like you could lead these young people into understanding what real racism is, what real oppression is, and allow them in 2020 to be victors. Because there's no reason for young black men in America today to be walking around with their head down, walking around in fear. Walking around being afraid of police. Because if you look at statistical data, it is, I'll give you the numbers, 40 million African-American people in the United States of America, around 40 million. Some people say 40, 41, some people say 39. Around 40 million black people in America. In 2019, it was nine black men who were shot unarmed by police. It was nine. They upgraded the number to 14. If it's 14, now we all know that just because you're shot unarmed don't mean you're not a suspect and don't mean it was unjustified. But just for the sake of argument, 14 people, 14 black men were shot unarmed by police in 2019 out of 40 million black people. The percentage and likelihood of you getting killed by a police officer is like .00000 whatever the case may be. It is absolutely rare. You, you have a more of a chance of getting struck by lightning than being killed by, being killed by a police officer. Well, I, I think there's one thing that's worse. I'd be dying of COVID, but go ahead. Dying of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> you have a higher possibility of dying yeah. while black with COVID. You know, but but, but let, let, me, let, me, let me finish the thought. Let me finish this thought real quick. That is a legitimate number that they are not talking about on television. I grew up in the hood. I know for a fact that police officers weren't the biggest threat when I was growing up. It yeah. was other, unfortunately, other black males who were heavily involved in gangs, who my mama used to tell me, you can't, we used to get brand new shoes. I like the red shoestrings match my shirt. Mama said, you can't go, around, you can't right. go on Lil John right. with red shoestrings right. on because somebody gonna think you're a thug, they'll kill you. All of my friends who have died, have died from gang violence. All of my family members who were in prison or in prison for giving drugs, one was murder, another murder another black man, but giving drugs to other black people. So if you really want to fix 
America or black America, you want to support black lives. You have to start in the hood. You have to start in the inner city. We have to start loving one another in the inner city. We have to start taking care of our own children. The Adam uh, Wetlock birth is like 73% when it was 22% in the 60s. Like, we need to address those issues. Those issues being addressed will allow for young men to not be so volatile on a traffic stop. As a black police officer, I used to get, I mean, I used to get ridiculed all the time by black people. I hate to say I was the black person whisperer because when my, when my white brothers would go to a call, Brandon Tatum would show up and then the black person would immediately say, hey man, you know, they, they, they out here doing, I'm like, no, no, man. You know, you gotta follow the law, brother. You don't get, you don't get a chance to skip out on the law just because you black and I'm black. You have to do what's right. And we were challenged more often by black people than anybody else. And they would call me a sellout. I was an Uncle Tom. One man told me I pulled him over because he was black. I say, I'm black. What are you talking about? As he's driving in a car at midnight with tinted windows that I should have gave him a ticket for, and he actually looked Hispanic. So, not to make light of it, but what I'm saying is that can we have a, a real conversation about these issues so we can work together as a family and stop saying my community against the white people? It's like, no, man, let's all work together. We all really love each other at the end of the day. This is not the 60s. There is a um, fundamental sense of inferiority that many young black people live in. Um, they're heroes, the people that they place on a pedestal and admire, they're role models all jacked up. Mm -hmm. And it's because of limited opportunities and the exposure to a better life. You can't be what you can't see. You can't go where someone is not willing to take you by the hand. My, my, my understanding of, of racism um, is real. Not from a personal perspective, but also from a political perspective. The, 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 the powers that be that operate our government can be no better than the character and the hearts of the people that run it. Unfortunately, we're in the days of Matthew 24, where the love of many is wax cold. No one has a right to be God. No one has a right to determine on a whim who lives or dies, who succeeds and who fails. Um, no one in the black community wants to defund the police. 
we need the police. You know, uh, I will tell you about a sermon I preached, but I'm not going to tell you that. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> but, but we're going to have to go into tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, we have to get to a place where my grandchild has the same opportunity to succeed as your grandchild. And that the content of their character will determine their success. I was brought up that in order to succeed, being a minority, that you had to be twice as smart, work twice as hard, be twice as integral, integral to get to the same end. The odds are against us, and it's not just because we're black. The odds are against us because of the numbers. <laughs> we make up less than 8% of the population. And there are certain ways that black people have to operate and look at life through a different set of lenses simply because we are in the minority. It's, it's, it's not always a racial thing. It's a numbers thing. You know, Ray Charles can see, and Steve, you don't have to wonder again, <laughs> if I tried something if I wanted to do something racially motivated, I'm in the minority right now. You know, the numbers are against me. But when it's all said and done, it should not, it should not be a dynamic where I don't have an opportunity or my life doesn't matter because I'm not one of you. And, and, and so, I, I, I'm, no, no, I, I want you to finish your thought. I was just telling Brandon that we're coming to the close, and I want him to, to have a thought. I, I, I want to set it up. Okay. Can I have a way to close it? Okay. The Bible says this, that Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became like us to save us. He connected emotionally with us, mentally with us. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our, he became like us in order to save us. And I really hate to say this, but this is the God truth. Until white America can vicariously place itself in the heart and the lives and the experiences of a black American. It will be difficult for reconciliation. But that is the miracle of what's going on right now. The, the, we, would need, we wouldn't have this conversation. The intrigue and the interest in this conversation would not even be possible if the hearts of the people of this church was not connected with wanting to bring about true 
reconciliation. And that starts with you. Thank you. You It starts with you. I... You're probably going to change the way you feel about me when I say this. <laughs> what you just described of the need for the white community to step into the shoes of the black community and understand, it's conversely true. Absolutely. I've been called systemically racist. My heritage going back with the Irish, they were white slaves. My ancestors fought in the Civil War on the North. Some of them died. Yeah. I've never owned a slave. I, I love you. There's anything I wouldn't do for you. I burden for the black community. But to call me systemically racist? You, you don't know me any more than I know you as far as the experience, meaning. Right. It's conversely true. And what the enemy wants to do is to divide and destroy. Absolutely. But we're not letting that happen. Absolutely. That will never happen with us. And the more we spend time together, the more we realize we're not who the other thought we were, right? Or at least what the world wants us to think of right. each other. I think that's true with everybody in America. But the enemy has got us pitted against one another. And what Brandon pointed out, and, and I know we're living on time and I know you have a thought and I feel terrible, but Almost I'll tell you that. right now, we're doing this again. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yes. You can clap on that one. <laughs> what Brandon said when he spoke of a need for role models like you, I'm also going to add to that. When I talked about, you said 8%, it's 13% of the, of the population of America is black. And I've shared with you the statistic that you, you cut that in half, 6.5% male, female. Break it down to childbearing years, it's about 4% female childbearing is responsible for 40% of the abortions. Margaret Sanger, the eugenicist, yeah. abortion clinic set up in racial community, you know, she wanted the destruction of the inferior races. Yeah. And she's celebrated to this yeah. day. And Black Lives Matter is supported by Planned Parenthood and vice versa. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a holocaust. Yes. But that being said, when I pointed that out to you and I'm pro-life and you, you thought that that's why I voted for Trump, no. It's critical to me. But you pointed out something to me I never thought about. You said, you, you know why there's Planned Parenthood there and, and why there's a connection? And I said, why? And she says, because they're the only people that go in the inner city to give us a way out. Now, granted, it's not a great way out. You got a single mother and they think that this is the chance and you're going to have a future. And, but you said something to me that shook me to the core. You invited me to preach at your church. But I invited you first. <laughs> and you said something to me. You said, this is the first time I've been invited to preach at a white church on top of the hill. Because you were down in Oxnard. 25 years. 25 years. I was, I was shocked. I thought, first of all, they're missing probably the best preacher in Ventura County. California, <laughs> United States, whatever. <laughs> but, but, but secondly... I, I couldn't process that. And, and you said to me, Rob, the white church doesn't come down to where the black church is. And I'd say the same, it's time the, the black church come up where the white church is. Right. I think 
what we all need to do is just realize that there's a great need in the black community. And, and we're going to send kids to Mexico and send them on mission trips here, mission trips there, and all these things. It's about time some of these wealthier churches start to adopt these inner city churches with black pastors who are trying to make it work. And they've got single parent families that you've described that have an absentee with fathers. And we start really putting our faith into practice and start walking through this together as a community. And if you want to see an awakening and revival in America, and Brandon, you close with this because I, I, I'll talk forever and people are already turning off the computer. <laughs> I would like to see as far as an awakening and revival in the United States that these cities that have been burned, we're looking at Minneapolis and we're seeing what happened in Wisconsin, what's, what's going on in Portland, although that's not so much a Black Lives Matter as much as, but, but you're looking at some of, it's New York City, Chicago, if we really serve a God that hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind is to a man's benefit to overlook an offense and greater is he who's in me than he is in the world. If we really believe that God to exist, then let's put on our armor and go, and, and I'm not talking about bulletproof vests. I'm talking about the armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, sword of scripture, the, the, the belt of truth. Let's go into the inner city and come alongside and start ministering to where the need is. As Nehemiah built the wall where the, the, the need is on the wall, they built and they kept guard. Let, let's start shoring up the entirety of the community instead of allowing the enemy to pit us against one another and somehow saying, you don't understand me because you haven't walked in my shoes. And I'm gonna say, yeah, you don't understand me, you haven't walked in my shoes. Right, right, right. <laughs> let's, let's grab each other's hand and go walk together. Absolutely. Now, you can wear my shoes, I'll wear yours, I don't care. When Jacob and Esau... You didn't do what I said. I, I said I wanted to go to Brandon, and you told me... I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead, Jacob I'm Esau. A and, and I, and I'm a I know this is going to be at least four chapters of the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the short version, All right, okay? boom. Uh, when Jacob... Amen. And, All right, so... When, <laughs> <laughs> Jacob and Esau hated each other. Amen. They were distant for many years. When the time came, and I believe that the time is now for reconciliation. When the time came for reconciliation, Jacob offered Esau a peace offering. The words of Jacob, the words of Esau resonates in my soul. Jacob said these words, I don't need it, I have enough now. And these brothers embraced their families. I believe that when the black community can be able to say, I have enough now, the needs are met, we're healthy, Reconciliation comes when there are two healthy people sitting at the table and they're able to communicate without a sense of animosity and contention. I'm going to add to that. And I'm, uh, I'm going to go biblical on you. Because <laughs> you and I connect on that. That's why I like you. Uh, that's why I love you and you love me and you don't want to say it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's 
one of my favorite passages that you just brought up. It says that Abraham died. No. No, no, I'm sorry. Esau and Jacob. When their father died, they came together to bury him. Yeah. So if two parties who are at enmity with one another, and we're just talking about melanin content, if two parties are at enmity with one another and there needs to be reconciliation, the application of that passage is somebody's got to die. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not you and it's not me. It's already been done. Jesus died. Yes. He died to forgive. Yes. And we can't carry the blue chip stamps and say, until this happens, I'm not. mm -mm." No. To the level you've been forgiven, you forgive. He has, he says, to tell us die, it is finished. That's the last word on the cross. Yes. Paid in full. It's covered. Yes. We can't withhold that from each other, no matter the hurt. And the minute we start doing that, we already have. Let's show the rest how to do it. Yes. Let's walk in and show them. You take me anywhere you want to go, I'm fearless. I, 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 my life, I'm, I, I died a long time ago. You take me anywhere you want to go, I'll go with you. And we'll declare to tell us die. Because you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Close us. <laughs> I was going to say that's a pot calling the kettle black, but that would be dangerous. So it's it's really hard to close with all the bromance going on. Right here, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I just like to add and piggyback to what was said is that it's in the mind. Yeah. As a young man in America today, you know, regardless of race, your success is in your mind. And I believe that God has given us the power to accomplish. And, you know, people talk about white privilege. And I don't, I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in Christ's privilege. Because there's no door... honestly believe this. There is no door that is going to somehow be shut when God is opening for me just because I'm black. Unless I don't believe in Christ. And as a young 33-year-old man, I'm the CEO of three businesses. I've been highly successful. I drive the Batmobile. I've seen it. I drive a Batmobile. (laughs) I'll take you a ride in it one day. But You know, I I grew up in a circumstance where people would think that I was supposed to stay in the hood and be a thug. And some of you guys didn't know me before I got saved. I used to have gold teeth in my mouth. Bless you. I used to have. (laughs) He he, he, he got rid of them to buy his car. I got. (laughs) It was was fake gold, so it didn't really make me no money. Uh, but I, you know, I got tattoos all over my arms. I got my hood tattooed on my forearms. I got Young Savage tattooed across my stomach. And so, you know, I've been there, done that. You know, I grew up in a violent environment. You know, I see people fighting all the time, family members going to prison for life. 
You know, my, my uncle went to prison 40 years federal time. My auntie died. I don't know what, I don't know if she was high or whatever. She fell asleep. Um, she died from smoke inhalation. She killed herself and uh, my cousin's firstborn son. And my father, who's a fire, he was, at the, he was the battalion chief. He had to respond to that call. And so I've been through all that. But God made it right in me. And when I got saved, it's when I forgave. And I forgave America a long time ago for whatever uh, adversities that have came to pass. And I do believe that all things work for the good, those who love the Lord and who are called. And I think that if you're a Christian and you believe and you are saved in the blood of Jesus, that you are a part of that promise. You are a part of the success of the things that were done in America that has led us to this point of greatness. You know, slavery in America was a horrible thing. But that led us, especially as Americans of African descent, African-Americans, led us to being some of the most prosperous people in the world. There's no other place in the, in the world that black people have opportunities like they do in America. There's no other place in the world that has the guidance of the Constitution that is like America. So with all of our adversities, God has been able to push us to a position where we can sit around like this and have meaningful conversations. But I just want to end with this. It's in the mind. Your success is in your mind. Oppression is in your mind. If you believe that you can achieve something, you pursue it with all you got, don't waste time making excuses about the color of your skin or your mom and them and what they did. You pursue that goal. You outperform everybody for the position, then you'll get it. Every job I went on, I never thought twice about my race. My pastor told me I had to work twice as hard because I'm black. I, I, I still got to compete against other black people too. So <laughs> if I got to work twice as hard as a white person, then I got to work five times as hard as the other black person. <laughs> but, but my mission was to outwork everybody. Because at the end of the day, I have to answer to God. And that's my, only, that's my only measure is God. And how much do I pursue? How much am I praying? How much am I really believing in God? That's going to determine my future more so than any human uh, condition, any race, or anything like that. So it's in the mind. I, I like that. I like that. Sixty-four, fifty-six, thirty-three. Okay, I'm not just the creamy middle. I'm middle of an age too. <laughs> you shared with me you were a wayward young man. You walked in the doors of a church, and the gospel was presented. Mm -hmm. You forgave, you forgot, but somebody first preached to you. Right. How will they know unless someone tells them? How how lovely are the feet? of those who bring good news. If we're not going where the truth doesn't reside because we're afraid, then those folks aren't gonna hear. Right. So your message resonates to an audience that comes to hear you and you do go into the inner city and you share these things. Mm -hmm. But it's about time that we, we make a greater effort of that. Let's do it, let's go in. And you close, and then, because really, I, I know you want to talk, and I just, I, I got to, I mean, my dog's waiting for me to let the, you know, it's the house is probably a mess right now, and it's, it's your fault. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll take it. 
I appreciate what you said about it starts with the mind because the mind is the avenue of change. We preach, we teach, and I believe that the church is responsible for resolving this racial issue in America. Amen. The church is responsible. It is. Because when we teach, we can't preach and teach to advance a political agenda. We can't teach and preach to help people become wealthy. We have to teach and preach so that people will change. Amen. You know, the, 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 the domains of change goes from the cognitive to the effectual or the emotional, to the behavioral. You gotta fix it, I'm not gonna hear you. From the cognitive to the, to the emotional, to the behavioral, and ultimately to the existential. We become what the mind absorbs. Amen. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Right. Reconciliation will never happen until we become new creatures in Christ. Amen. Great word to end on. Did I tell you the truth? Isn't he precious? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Amen. And, <laughs> I, and am I right? Um, you're a jewel. Man, He's a, you guys are treasures. I, 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 I'm going to say this. I'm mad at God <laughs> right now because I wish my son could have encountered you. Mm -hmm. you know? What am I going to do with that? You killed me. <laughs> All right. Uh, that means a lot. That, that really means a lot. No, no it's, it's, it's true. Where's the, here's the bromance. I'm out now. Hey, don't be mad. That's all right. Would, would you close us in prayer? And then, Brandon, I want you, we always close with the, the blessing. And they're going to put up on the screen. You'll be able to read it. And then while you're reading it, they're going to have it on. So the audience is going to say it at the same time you're saying it. Oh, okay. But close us in prayer. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we love you. We adore you. We bow down before you. We humble ourselves at your feet. And we acknowledge the original sin of arrogance and pride. And so we, we ask God your forgiveness because you said that if your people to call by your name would humble themselves, pray and seek your face in turn, that we would hear from heaven and that you would heal our land. We need healing. We need healing. And so God, we're, we're initiating that process tonight by humbling ourselves because we realize that we're, that we're, that we're flawed and we fall short we realize that we're not everything that we should be. And so, God, I pray 
that you would break us and mold us and shape us, form us and fashion us into what you would have us to be. And we, we corporately submit to your perfect will. And so in the name of Jesus, all that's been said and all that's been shared and all of the discussion that we've, that we've heard and that we've all embraced, we lay all of these words and experiences at the altar. And we ask, Father, that while we lay these dynamics at the altar, that you would consecrate us again. Search us. Search us, God. And if you find anything that shouldn't be, I pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit so that we can be the people, the community, the nation, and church that you've called us to be. I thank you for Pastor McCoy. I thank you for his boldness. I thank you for his vision. I thank you for Brother Brandon and for his understanding of a need to have these conversations and to avail himself and give him such, such uncommon and supernatural wisdom at such a young age. I pray that you would use him in a manner that brings reconciliation and healing. And I pray, Father, that the boldness of this pastor would be transformed into something that will literally revolutionize the church world all over this country. We bless you, God, and we praise you for this Kairos moment that will never happen again. And so, Lord, we, we thank you and pray that you would grant to us traveling mercies, and I decree and declare in the name of Jesus that we will never be the same Amen. from this night. Amen. In Jesus' name. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 We put it up on the screen, right? All right, so folks, can you see it on the screen there? Brandon, you bet. Lead off and just start reading. They're going to join with you. Go for it. All right. The Lord bless, bless you, you and keep, keep you. The Lord, Lord make, make his, his face to shine upon you and be, and be gracious to you. The, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give, give you, you peace. peace. Well done. Well, folks, uh, I hope at home you're standing as well because everyone here is standing and applauding. And we wanted to say thank you for joining us. And, and I know I put you on the spot and you're busier than a one-armed wallpaper hanger. Both of you are. But you, you didn't acknowledge, but it doesn't matter. We're going to do this again. When, we'll figure it out. We'll coordinate. This has to happen. You guys are precious. Thank you. Thank you. I love you both. You're amazing. God bless you guys. We'll see you tomorrow night.